Hello, and welcome to the Methinks podcast. Our journey as Christians, graduate students, and budding scholars regularly leads us to explore questions about ethics, sexuality, history, and faith. The Methinks podcast is an invitation for you to join us in that journey, to thoughtfully engage and wrestle with these questions alongside us. My name is Maggie, and I am a historian. I study history, particularly uh, the intellectual and religious history of America. My name is Joel. I'm a PhD student studying philosophy, and I tend to focus on issues concerning privilege, justice, and arguments for God's existence, and against God's existence for that matter. And I think, Joel, both of us have a tendency to get sidetracked on things that interest us and particularly things that relate to the current moment. And that's really what we're doing now is we're talking about how have our scholarly lives and even our spiritual walks intersected with issues of racial injustice, which is clearly something that is concerning a lot of people right now. Yeah, for sure. So each of us is on a journey discovering the myriad ways that the Black community, and in particular in America, has been oppressed and mistreated. We want to be clear about this. We don't pretend to be woke, but we are waking up. This episode is a brief overview of a few of the resources that helped rattle us into seeing the reality of racial injustice. And I just want to say for me personally, this is a rather recent experience in the past just few years. I know Maggie has been studying the history of America for a while. So there are a lot of things that she's 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 been waking up to for a long time. And so I just want to be clear that this is a, a new journey, but I think that kind of honesty is important, especially in the white community, just to own up to the fact that we haven't always been attentive to the information, haven't always been attentive to the facts and the history. And I think the recent events surrounding the passing of George Floyd give us an opportunity to enter into that discussion, to listen, to learn, and to be present. So we want to centralize Black voices in this discussion, but we also want to play our part. We don't expect to just sit idly by and let others assume the burden of educating us. So instead, our goal is to work in tandem with others to learn about the history and reality of racial oppression. And this episode is our small contribution to that, where we talk about some of the books uh, and resources and literature that really kind of jarred us and rattled us into seeing the reality of racial oppression. And I want to say too, if you're having difficulty even knowing how to enter this conversation or how to talk to one another about issues of justice. If you, within your friend group or your church group, um, even professionally, you're not sure how to even start this conversation, starting with resources like the ones we're going to suggest is a really good way. Because when you read these, you're going to have questions. And when you start a conversation with questions instead of answers, people are going to be a lot more willing to discuss harder issues with you. And it's also going to open up new avenues of information and just knowledge. Like when you ask a question, not knowing the answer, you might get answers you weren't expecting. And that can really, I think, open up our eyes to a lot of what's going on in our own society that I know I personally am not sensitive to because it's not my lived experience. Um, So I want to definitely reiterate Joel's point that I'm not woke in the sense that I'm not that sensitive to issues of racial injustice. Because when I observe my world, oftentimes um, I do observe it in kind of a colorblind sense. And I don't mean that in a positive way. I mean that I'm just not picking up or attuned to a lot of things that are happening. Um, 
because I know the history, I often am very open to when people say, oh, there is injustice here. I'm like, well, yeah, that chances are there probably is versus not. Because if we look at our history, there has been a lot of injustice. So the evidence is heavily on the side of injustice. But as far as like my lived experience, I don't see it that often. And that's why I have to ask questions. I have to be so much more willing to listen in that kind of position of humility. Yeah. And you mentioned your lived personal experience. And that reminds me of a very, very important point we want to emphasize here. Some of the resources that kind of rattled us into seeing the reality of racial injustice are somewhat intellectual in their nature. They have to do with history. They might have to do with stats. But we want to avoid merely intellectualizing an issue that touches on people's personal lives. And so we encourage you, as you're reading some of these uh, resources or doing your own research, don't refrain from hearing the personal stories of Black Americans who've lived through racial injustice, who have experienced racial discrimination. So we just want to encourage you to, um, as you're thinking about racial injustice and waking up to it, don't merely intellectualize it. Listen to the stories and the testimonies of ordinary Black Americans who have lived it. Okay, so one of my recommendations is a book by Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law. Richard Rothstein is a distinguished fellow of the Economy Policy Institute and an emeritus senior fellow of the Thurgood Marshall Institute at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. That was a mouthful. So he wrote this book, The Color of Law, came out a few years ago and has gained a lot of attention. The book is described as one of the definitive histories on housing segregation in the 20th century. So Rothstein's book details the history of what's called residential or housing segregation, starting from around the late 19th century to the late 20th century or mid 20th century. So what is this book about? And why did it rattle me? The book's emphasis is on the myriad ways that local and state governments, and yes, even the federal government, played important roles in creating housing segregation between blacks and whites. So we can ask, why does this matter? Start with the observation that blacks and whites continue to live very segregated lives, with black communities living in predominantly poor neighborhoods. Moreover, Bring to mind all the other kinds of disparities between blacks and whites other than residential disparities. So major health disparities, wealth disparities, and educational inequalities. According to Rothstein, these latter inequalities are not an accident, but are importantly connected to the way that residential segregation impacts wealth, health, and education. So sometimes people will say that residential segregation was the result of personal decisions. So you know, black people prefer to live with black people, white people prefer to live with white people, and then sprinkle on there a you know, nice dose of discrimination and implicit, even explicit racism. And that's how you get housing segregation in the United States. But according to Rothstein, that is somewhat of a myth. It's not that individual choices didn't impact things. They did. But we have forgotten the myriad ways that the government worked to separate blacks from whites. So there are all sorts of ways in which the federal government, state government, and local governments were involved in segregating neighborhoods, blacks versus whites. And for Rothstein, this is really important because where you live is an important determinant of what else you have, what kind of education you have access to, 
It's going to determine things like how close you are to work, what kind of jobs you can get. Not only that, but Rothstein notes that for many Black Americans who could not buy good housing because of low investment into Black neighborhoods, they did not have the opportunity to acquire wealth from their house. So home equity was seriously stunted for a lot of Black Americans because of the way that local, state, and federal governments segregated housing. When exactly is he saying this happened? Is this something he's arguing is still in existence? When was it outlawed? When was it kind of like, what? what is the kind of historical period of all of these laws? I know you mentioned the early 20th century, but how much is, the, what is the scope of the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the scope of the book is the late 19th century into really the mid 20th century. So around the 60s, I can't remember the exact time, but yeah, the Supreme Court ruled that a lot of this government-driven segregation, the efforts of the government to only fund on the basis of segregated proposals, that that was problematic and unconstitutional. So around the 60s, we start to see things really change from a legal point of view, but we are reaping the long-term outcomes of the way that the government pushed for segregated housing. This, This book just super rattled me because I knew that there was segregation. I knew that there was discrimination. And I had no idea, however, that it was happening at the level of the federal government, of state governments, pushing for these sorts of residential segregated housing projects. So that's sort of the overview of the book. It's incredibly provocative. And the the details are sort of gut-wrenching at different points. So I'll just give a quick sample of some of the things that I thought were really interesting. Federal government-funded housing projects during the war effort, so around 1940 to 1945, often included explicit regulations about who could receive mortgage insurance. Okay, so take California, for example. The Federal Housing Administration refused to insure mortgages for Black Americans wanting to buy in neighborhoods that were designated as white. It also refused to insure whites who wanted to buy houses in neighborhoods that were predominantly uh, that were designated as black. So Rothstein says, quote, in ways like this, federal, state, and local governments purposely created segregation in every metropolitan area of the nation. And you might think, oh, well, that's just in California. But as Rothstein, Rothstein shows, this was happening everywhere in the United States. Here's another one. In response to a major housing shortage that started around the 1930s and into the 1950s, the federal government began funding housing projects for civilians who weren't engaged in defense work. So during World War II, the government was funding a lot of housing for those who were involved in the war effort. And because of this housing housing, uh, shortage, the government started funding housing projects for non-military involved civilians. The Public Works Administration took the lead here and built numerous housing projects across the United States, North and South. And I just want to emphasize North and South. And the reason is when I have conversations with people about some of this stuff, one response is, well, that was happening mostly in the South and not the North, right? And no, it was happening everywhere. So for the Public Works Administration, race was a major factor determining who could buy houses in these new projects. Not surprisingly, it was often the case that Black designated neighborhoods received lower investment and were sometimes placed in less desirable locations. And here's this one last one that really stood out to me. So I just learned about, from this book, Restrictive Covenants, where a community of people could get together and agree that they would not allow 
black Americans to buy houses in that neighborhood, that they wouldn't sell their houses to black Americans. And for a long time, the Supreme Court and and state courts couldn't do anything about that because they thought that the, the homeowners had the rights, the liberty to sell to whomever they wanted. So lots of these communities were building restrictive covenants, being restrictive communities. Lots of homeowners were putting into the deed of the house that the house could not be sold to black Americans. And recall, these are white Americans living in suburban areas, middle-class to upper-class areas where blacks were wanting to enter. Now, often in order to receive uh, funding for some of the federally funded housing projects happening across the United States, the Federal Housing Administration required that contractors build into the deeds of the house that Blacks were prohibited from buying in these neighborhoods, these white designated neighborhoods. So again, this is not just individuals who are involved in these sorts of discriminatory actions. This is the federal government withholding funds from people unless they built in discriminatory regulations into the deeds of houses. This is the federal government going around encouraging homeowners to build into the deeds of their houses these discriminatory clauses. And let me be clear about something. This is not happening behind closed doors in secret. What the Federal Housing Administration is doing, what the Public Works Administration is doing, what other uh, branches or, or levels of government are doing is happening in the open. They are explicitly building these things into their policies. This is not like a conspiracy theory. As Richard Rothstein shows, this is not the hidden history of how America segregated blacks and whites. This is the forgotten history. It's all there. The details are explicit. We've just forgotten about them. And when you realize just how recent this all was, kind of wrapping up in the 60s, and when you realize how widespread it was happening across the United States, in the North and in the South, and when you realize how far-reaching the impact is of being segregated into different communities, the educational impact, the impact on what kind of jobs you can get because of access to work, the impact on wealth accumulation because of not being able to have home equity, you can start to understand the current disparities and inequalities we currently see. This is part of what people mean. It's part, just one part of what people mean by systemic and structural racism. Things that were explicitly built into the law that are currently impacting, negatively impacting the black community in a myriad of ways. And it didn't happen in the 19th century around the time of the Civil War. No, this is just a few decades ago, and we're reaping the long-term consequences of it. It's hard because you don't want to burden um, the people that you know who are people of color with all of your questions, as if it's their responsibility to tell you how to respond to the situation, um, what's the right thing to do as a Christian. Um, but there are leaders in the Black community who are also believers who are giving us resources that we can turn to. And I think it's very important that we do that. Um, and so I really want to highlight Jamar Tisby's work, um, A, because he's a historian. Um, he's also been working on his doctorate for a while, so I can relate. I have like I feel like I have camaraderie with him, although he's also done like amazing things and potentially like published two books while he's been working on his doctorate. So I have like zero excuse in comparison. Um, but his book, The Color of Compromise, um, 
in the subtitle is The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. And it's certainly being talked about a lot in evangelical circles. Um, it's made waves. I think that the work that it does is very powerful. Um, the reason I want to turn attention to his scholarship is because of the heart that he has behind his work. Um, the book itself is phenomenal. I think it's it's a really good read. It's a very easy read for a work of history that covers so much. Um, you you get you don't get bogged down in the academic language, but I do think that you you have to pause because of the weight of what he is talking about. Um, but he puts it in such a clear way that I think it, it really does make particularly uh, the white church sit back and think about what has happened and what the role of the white church has been in America's history. Um, but my introduction to Jamar Tisby was actually, um, before I even knew about his book, I was um, teaching a class on religion and the culture wars. And my students really wanted to talk about the first iteration of the Black Lives Matters movement. And um, since it was on religion and the culture wars, I wanted to get some religious voices um, to talk about it. And I found a talk that he had given called The Heart Cry Behind the Black, Black Lives Matter movement. And what I loved about it was that he so graciously walked um, his audience through the history of America and racism and racial terrorism in the form of lynching. And he was so clear that grief should be felt here, not necessarily guilt, but that we have to understand that we can't just push this aside, right? We have to reckon with it. We have to lament. We have to grieve over the fact that this was part of our story. I think that's an incredible point. And one thing that I've been wrestling with as I've had more and more conversations about racial injustice with with others is this this question what are we supposed to do what are we supposed to do and i think that question's really good and we need to ask that question we need to wrestle with it but i think one of the most important things we can do right off the bat is just grieve and lament the way that the black community has been treated and not just by you know racists from the antebellum south but by people throughout the decades leading up to the 20th century across America. And so I, I think Tisby's point is well taken. This sort of posture of lamenting and grieving and sitting in the heaviness of that is a super important first step. Yeah. And so I think as far as recommendations go, he has a podcast. Um, his book is good. Um, you might not agree with him on everything. Um, and I just want to say that's fine. One of the things that I find troubling as a historian, um, because you can kind of see the ebbs and flows of polarization in American culture and the consequences of that, is that when you make an issue all or nothing, right, you either have to be super radical and go full all in with every single change, societal change that's being demanded right now in the in the protests, um, or else you do nothing, say nothing, and think nothing can be fixed. Those aren't the only options, and we need to stop buying that those are the only options. And I think particularly as believers, we can turn to God's word and see that we do have a role. We do have a set of standards, and they are standards that ask for action and ask for compassion and certainly humility and love. And I think it's from that space of humility and love that we need to act and listen to the Black community, particularly those voices that are speaking to us as the white church and saying, please do something. So we need to ask ourselves, 
what are they asking us to do? Because in that act of servitude, right, not just listening, but also being willing to be taught. And that's, I think, what I am trying so hard to get myself to do. It's not, it does not come easy for me. I like coming into conversations with opinions and arguments and facts and answers. Um, But instead, as I said earlier, I think we need to come into these conversations with questions um, and be willing to do the work um, on our own, right? And find those answers because there are people out there that are giving us these resources. Yeah, that's so good. And in addition to asking what, are our black brothers and sisters asking of us, there's this question, what do they want us to learn? And I think that's been such an important part of my journey waking up to racial injustice is learning to just kind of sit back and listen and to, to discover that there's so much I don't know, but so much I stand to learn and have learned from, you know, black scholars and even just people who are just like ordinary human beings who have lived through discrimination and know what it's like to live on the other end of that. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. Join us for the next episode where we continue our conversation about waking up to racial injustice. See you next time.